All right, so let's get into today's message. Uh, we're doing a series called Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity. We're looking at 15 major topics or major emphasis of Scripture, and we're trying to re-examine them to ask the question, is our approach to Christianity in modern uh, times as biblical as we think it is? It would be my thesis that uh, what developed out of uh, in the around the time of the Civil War, but really going back as maybe as early as the 1830s, but really picking up steam in the 1860s and 70s, that uh, later later was called uh, the Modernist versus, versus Fundamentalist controversy. Um, modernism had uh, had some presuppositions that it brought to the scriptures and to its approach to God that included uh, biological Darwinism and eventually social Darwinism, and um, a, a willingness to reject what both the Hebrew uh, scribes and teachers had taught even for a hundred or a couple hundred years before Christ, and to reject what the church has taught from the beginning about certain things in the Bible and especially the authorship of books. And because of the anti-supernatural bias, for example, the book of Daniel accurately predicts the coming of the Babylonians, the Medes, the Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. And so it was assumed that the book of Daniel must not have been written until about the first century A.D. because God couldn't possibly know uh, what's going to happen in history before it happens because they're of course have a, a very unbelieving posture towards who God is and of course the Bible reveals God who his eternal decrees who declares the the end from the beginning who knows the future he knows the days that uh that you'll die already uh he knows how much you'll grow in the Lord before you go to be with the Lord and uh he already knows uh if Austin and, and Morgan are going to name the baby Clara or Christina. <laughs> they, might, they don't know yet, but the Lord knows. And so uh, and maybe there will be a third name altogether that they don't know yet. That would be a pretty bad girl's name, I think. Um, you wouldn't want to put that kind of curse on a kid. <laughs> so... Um, that's probably child abuse. <laughs> um, so anyway, um, the 15 emphasis that we're looking at, we looked for a few weeks at loving God. Oops, we lost that slide. Uh, I don't have memorized. <laughs> grace upon grace, we, uh, which is a big theme of this church. That's why we called the church Grace Christian Fellowship. And I, if you remember, it's our thesis that... Uh, being performance-based is part of our sinful nature. And therefore, there's a lot of performance-based thinking in individual Christians, in various Christian movements, and so forth. Uh, if you struggle with performance-based, not only would I recommend redoing the Grace Upon Grace series, which Stephen can give you the links and the outlines, but I'd especially encourage you to, to focus some attention on the books of Romans and Galatians, respectively. Paul really de deals a lot with grace versus performance in those two books. And that's why Paul is actually sometimes called the Apostle of the Holy Spirit, but he's more often called the Apostle of Grace. Because he has some of the clearest teachings about uh, walking by grace, not by works or performance. Uh, then we also uh, looked at the church, and we looked at leadership in the church, uh, and we looked at lots of biblical words for leadership, from priest to elder to shepherd, uh, to apostle, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, teachers, all those words and what they mean, and why biblical leadership uh, terms are descriptive rather than prescriptive. And uh, you should know what I mean by that. If you don't, you should review that and learn, learn some of that. Uh, because leadership is uh, very opposed in, in, in our culture. What, part of the nature of the sin nature is we hate authority. 
We love when a politician messes up. We love when a sports star messes up. Uh, we love when people who seemingly have more money or talents or gifts uh, have some kind of crash or fall because in our hearts we hate authority and to hate authority is to hate God because all legitimate authority comes from God. So that's a huge topic. And then uh, about, uh, let's see, I guess about seven messages ago we started on emphasis number five which is not just the word of God, uh, but it's restoring the view that all scripture is inspired by God, all scripture is written by one author, it has one major message, and um, it, it's all interconnected. That's why scripture interprets scripture. That's something that's going to be important to the material we cover today. So that was uh, Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of thy word is truth. Now, for the last four weeks, we've been on emphasis 5D, A through D, A, B, C, and D. Uh, and we, we've been looking at the Pentateuch, and especially over the last four weeks, um, we've been looking at the book of Genesis. And we looked at seven reasons that Genesis and the Pentateuch are foundational to our understanding of all Scripture. There's lots of Christians who've never studied the book of Leviticus or Numbers. And I submit to you that you can't understand the sayings of Jesus if you haven't. So uh, we looked at 10 major divisions of Genesis. Uh, that's because uh, 11 places in Genesis, it starts with the phrase, these are the generations of, depending on the translation. And uh, we looked at the nature of biblical history. It's interesting that... Uh, Herodotus is called the father of history in, uh, you know, the Greek historian. Uh, and uh, Moses, uh, you know, wrote the Pentateuch uh, nearly a thousand years before Herodotus. So I think Moses is the father of history. Um, of course, the humanists uh, love the Greeks and the Romans, not the Hebrews. Um, then we looked at 10 major biblical themes. Now, the reason I have it as D1 and D2 is that one we partly covered in part 5DC uh, and partly in 5DD. And then we looked at God's fivefold process of creation, which gives birth to man's sixfold process of dominion. And that was in, in part 5DD last week. So this is part 5E, or DE, that is. <laughs> uh, you need a scorecard. Um, so I want to just start by reiterating something that we covered a little bit already, and that is part of the one of the major ideas of liberalism when it came to attack the Christian faith in in the mid middle nineteenth century was the idea of questioning the historically accepted authors of various books. So one of those. Uh, ideas was known as the documentary hypothesis, and it was the idea that Moses didn't actually write the books that are called the books of Moses. The Pentateuch, the law, there's, as, we, as you see in point, uh, let's see, it's point Roman numeral four, big A. Uh, we give some of the different names, uh, the Torah, the five books, etc. Sometimes just called Moses. Now, Moses did write one psalm. I always forget if it's Psalm 90 or 91, but I think it's 90. And, um, and he wrote the first five books of the Bible. So the documentary hypothesis, we don't need to get into it, but there was the idea that there were, that there were four uh, streams of oral tradition and sometimes written documents that were, were woven together into one narrative by some kind of editor or redactor later. Uh, and they were they included the Yahwist documents, the the Deuteronomist, uh, anyway, uh, the I forget the all four, um, and um, you know we don't need to give attention to that. One of the reasons we don't is that Scripture interprets Scripture, and to believe that, then you have to believe that a number of scriptures in both testaments are wrong, because there's places in both testaments 
that Moses, they specifically say that Moses wrote certain things. So, for instance, in Mark 12, 26, Jesus, speaking about Exodus 3, 16, says, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read? Jesus loved to ask the Pharisees because they took very great uh, arrogance and pride in their, in their having memorized the whole uh, Jewish scriptures and, and so forth. So he loved to, uh, because of their lack of understanding, he loved to imply that they hadn't even read it. So he said, have you not read? Uh, which, you know, believe me, made them quite angry. Uh, to the point they sort of wanted to kill him. Oh, I think they did. Oh, yeah. Uh, so, but regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses? Jesus attributes it to Moses in the passage about the burning book, how God spoke to Moses saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. So, um, Mark 7, 10, uh, for Moses said, then he quotes the, the commandment, honor your father and mother, and he who speaks evil father and mother shall be put to death, which is uh, listed in both Exodus 20, 12 and Deuteronomy, uh, Deuteronomy 5, what is it, 16, I think, somewhere, I have it on the page somewhere, but I can't find it. Um, if you don't know, Deuteronomy 5 has, it, Deuteronomy means the second giving of the law, Deuteronomy is the second, Namas law, and Deuteronomy 5 gives the Ten Commandments word for word as they're listed in Exodus 20. Um, so, uh, Nehemiah uh, quotes about how they, on that day they read aloud from the books of Moses and so forth. So, now, uh, the rest of the time that we have today, and I'm uh, already maybe 12 minutes behind what I'd like to be, that was more review than I probably sh should do. I'm going to try to take us through the book of Exodus, and I'm just going to hit some highlights. Now, like the news, somebody has to select what's on the news and whether someone's you know, cat getting rescued from a tree deserves to be on the news, uh, or, you know, that so-and-so won bingo, or whatever they decide. Um, these, so these are, I guess, what I would consider some highlights from the book of Exodus. So the little uh, points small a are the highlights, and points small b are lessons that should be derived from these highlights. Now, it's important to see that um, Exodus is the only other book of the, of the Old Testament that you could argue as, is as essential as Genesis. It's really hard to make a case whether Genesis or Exodus is more important. You can't really understand much about any of the Bible without understanding those two books. Everything in the Bible is based on Genesis and Exodus. Everything. So uh, that's, that's quite important because a lot of Christians, uh, what, what I normally did uh, myself for years was I read uh, Genesis and Exodus, Psalms and Proverbs about four times for every three times I read the Old Testament. I always read, worked, read an extra time on Genesis and Exodus. So in Genesis 15, uh, the first highlight of Exodus is that it fulfills the promise that God made to, to Abraham in Genesis 15, uh, 13 through 14, where that Israel would be enslaved for 400 years. God said to Abraham, know for certain that your seed will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they'll be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. I meant to underline oppressed also. But I will also ju uh, judge the nation, etc. So... Uh, Exodus 1, 8, right at the beginning of Exodus, it says, Now a new king or a new pharaoh arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I wish I had time to go into this, but what that doesn't just, it doesn't just imply that what happened, this is 400 years after Joseph, and there's been a change in dynasty. So it's not just that the pharaoh, of course the you know, this is five or ten, eight pharaohs later, and of course, uh, you know, I didn't know George Washington personally, you know, so, 
But what he's really implying is he didn't know anything about Joseph, what function the Israelites had played in saving Egypt during the plague, and uh, you know the, the great status of Joseph and everything. And so a lot of that is, is likely because there was a change in dynasties, which you can actually study the names of the dynasties and the pharaohs if you like. But when there was a change in dynasties, there was a perf- purposeful obliterating of the records of the previous dynasties. So, uh, in other words, the records about Joseph were, were uh, intentionally destroyed. So there's a pharaoh that arises that knows nothing about who the Hebrews are. And to make it worse, the Hebrews are shepherds, which is considered quite loathsome to the Egyptians. Now, uh, behold, the sons of Israel are more and mightier than us, they say. So come, let us act wisely. They appointed taskmasters to afflict them and, they, and so forth. Uh, and they compelled the, Egypt, the sons of Israel to labor rigorously, made their lives bitter with hard labor, uh, etc. So one of, an important takeaway from all of this is this. We are living in a time when... Even very solid versions of Christianity have sort of a naively optimistic uh, uh, dream world fantasy of what life is supposed to be. Uh, this includes things like the prosperity gospel and the faith message. And I, you know, like if, if you ask someone how they're doing, they can be doing, you know, they can be sick. They're having to take drugs, whatever, and I'm great. Things are good. The Lord is so good. And, uh, you know, the truth is um, there's not much of a theology today of suffering. And there's not much of a theology of the fact that we, through faith and patience, we inherit the promises of God. God doesn't give you everything he intends for you God's, Jesus made it very clear in John 10, verse 10, that he, he came to give us life and give it to us more abundantly. That's his goal. The thief, he's referring to Satan, his satanic angels and his demons. I, I've run into a lot of people who don't seem to understand that satanic angels and demons are very different types of beings. It's important to understand that and why and why satanic angels don't uh, normally seek to inhabit a human person, whereas demons always do, and they must do that to live out their nature. And uh, it's amazing to me that there's lots of versions of Christianity where they seldom cast out demons. And Christianity, without understanding that we have an adversary that includes an archangel, uh, about one-third of the angels, it's estimated, uh, followed Satan in his rebellion. And there's a whole... Uh, entity of disembodied spirits with personalities called demons that the Bible gives us nothing about where they came from. But uh, Satan is clearly in charge of them. Beelzebub actually means Lord of the Flies. It's a metaphor for there's hordes of these things. And demons uh, do oppose us, and they do seek to indwell people but unfortunately, the King James Bible set the whole English-speaking world back uh, in, in measurable ways by mistranslating diamonazai as demon-possessed. The possession is a term that has to do with the doctrines of salvation, called, which is called soteriology. And you are, when you are a Christian, you are possessed by God. That's why Paul tells the Corinthians, you were bought with a price, glorify God with your bodies. I think that's 1 Corinthians 7.31, maybe, something like that. Um, if, if, um, if you're not a Christian, as Jesus made clear in John 8 to those who are rejecting his word, you're of your father, the devil. But I don't know how many of you have bought the ho- a house, but at, at, at a house buying you have a thing called a closing, and you still have the closing. I have bought three properties in my life debt-free where there was no bank loan, but there's still a closing, and there's documents to sign. 
And once you, uh, the first church I was ever involved in buying uh, for Date New Covenant, we had raised the money and paid cash for the church. We were $7,000 short of paying cash, and Catherine and I lent the church the rest of the money. So um, there was no bank loan, but there's still. But I remember I'm, I was. I remember writing a check for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and stopping and going. I'm writing a check for one hundred and fifty thousand dollars and it's not going to bounce. That that was a little bit of a weird feeling. And um, so once you own the property and you get the keys, you have a right to go in there. And if there are cockroaches, you have a right to get rid of them. And if you uh, have mice, you have a right to get rid of them. However, they don't just leave because you walked in and say, hey, I got these papers that say I own the place. The cockroaches are not impressed. It's my understanding they don't read well. Um, just going out on a limb there. But um, so uh, the truth is, uh, you have the right to begin to cast out of that property whatever you want to get out of there. And that's much like the Christian life. The demons don't all leave just because you became a Christian. You have to drive them out. So the promises of God that are manifold and abundant, our Christian life should look way better than it does. But on the way to being there, there's a lot of times what the, uh, the world would look at as a bad day. But God does it. You know, I was hurrying uh, to be to someone's house one night, late at night, 1030 or something, and running a little late. And my good friend, Officer Diaz, gave me a ticket. And I didn't consider that a good day. But Officer Diaz did. <laughs> he made his quote. But, uh, and... Uh, and God was trying to warn me that I shouldn't be speeding, even though I was late for a meeting. I shouldn't have dilly-dallied at Lowe's so much. Um, so, you know, what I, you know, TV Christianity is full of this, you're about to have a breakthrough. You're about to do, have this great thing happen and so forth. I just want you to know, you're about to get fired for, in, in, uh, for lousy reasons. You know, you're about to uh, get in a car accident. You're about, now, I'm not confessing negatively, but, you know, you're going to love uh, your children, and one of them's going to grow up, to, or two of them might grow up to break your heart. Uh, you know, uh, a good marriage, if, if, you know, that's 20-some years old, but they're young enough that they should have been married 50 years ends because of cancer. The, these things happen. This is part of the Christian life. Israel was intentionally taken to, to Egypt and put in slavery for 400 years as part of God's great salvation purposes for them. And God always has good intentions that you need to look for, and it's those who have faith and patience that find them. When you begin to thank God that your brother died unexpectedly. When you begin to thank God that you were misunderstood by that friend and you lost one of your dearest relationships and it doesn't seem like it's repairable. You know, God... Uh, there's no theology of hardship or taking up your cross or suffering in, in the Christian life today. It's all this fantasy world, hunky-dory. Uh, and, and I'm not saying that uh, I wish you uh, tough times. I am saying that, you know, I... I uh, was of some comfort to, Mo, Mo, for, to Logan's father and to several members of his extended family when I did his, his, the grand, his mother, grandmother's funeral because I've had close relatives die. And I might not have understood or empathized with what a, a, someone's going through as well had I not faced those kind of things. And God doesn't waste anything 
And yes, you will, you'll be wrongfully accused. You'll be the, you know, uh, Caleb's mother, when, when she got cancer, one thing I had such difficulty with was, uh, A, she was always the best eater in terms of nutrition of, ever, of all of us. Like, you know, we wanted to eat pizza and ice cream, and she wanted to have salad, you know. And, uh, you know, she always went for walks and took care of herself and so forth. And she never smoked or did any of the other kind of nutty things I did. And, uh, you know, that's how life is. So I spent too much time on that point, but that's a super huge point. Hebrews uh, 6, 19 through 20, I just uh, had enough room for verses 11 and 12. We desire that each of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Do you know so many people quit when they're, do you, you know, there was a guy named Charles that my wife and I helped a lot, and so and Logan and a lot of you helped Charles, Sydney especially. And, you know, we he didn't know it, but, uh, you know, he needed a lot of remedial education. Catherine spent hours getting his record from Oregon and getting him enrolled in this special school. And, and uh, we had talked to the teacher, and she had said, even though he can't pass the Ohio government test, we're still going to give him his diploma. And because he, and the, based on the pretest, he wasn't even close to passing, he quit and left town, and he would have had his diploma had he stayed one more week. And wasted all the efforts of Sydney and Catherine and all the other people who had helped him. And, you know, um, it's amazing how many people quit right before, if they just hung on a little bit, uh, they would have broken through to success. This, this type of thing happens. It's, it's a very common experience in life. 1 Peter 5, 10 through 11. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and, and establish you. So Exodus, that's from Exodus 1. I take Exodus 2, uh, in that chapter, Moses is born. He escapes death. Uh, he's raised in Pharaoh's courts. He kills the Egyptians, and he flees to, to, uh, to Midian. One of the great takeaways is that you need to, to think on Moses a lot as one of the great, uh, in, in Greek, the word is tupas, which we get type from, and there are what's called types. And many, many people in the Old Testament are types of Christ. And two of the most clear types of Christ, well, three, would be Adam, Joseph, and Moses. So just in, in uh, the book of Genesis and Exodus, you have three of the greatest, probably arguably the three, three greatest types of Christ in the Bible. And so thinking about uh, what all that God took Moses through uh, as a foreshadowing of Christ is a huge deal. Uh, if you don't spend a lot of time on that, then you wasted reading the book of Exodus. When you read Exodus... And, and through Deuteronomy, think about all the ways in which Moses foreshadows Christ, because there's dozens of them. As Moses even says, that God will raise up a prophet just like me, speaking of Christ. Exodus 3 is the chapter of the burning bush, where you get the tetragamot in, the, in uh, that chapter, Y-H-W-H, I am who I am. And um, uh, that is interesting because of a couple takes takeaway is this. God, whenever he's about to do something, he chooses someone. And they usually don't have that much inkling of what he's preparing them for. But he takes them, calls them to himself, uh, Actually, he, he was preparing them long before they knew it. You know, let's pick on Deanna. I always pick on Deanna. 
But we, we had a problem in this church that we had, uh, Amber was our only single lady, and we had 14 single guys. <laughs> and some of the single guys would have liked to see that ratio get a little bit more evened out. Daniel Williams had that idea. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> Samuel Chen Sing Poon was in favor of praying for that. Uh, and so we not only began to pray for that, but God beat the crap out of Deanna and all the loving things he does to get you uh, ready. Teaches you, breaks you down, builds you back up, breaks you down again, builds you back up. Breathes into you his, his spirit, his power, fills you with wisdom and all this kind of stuff. Because God, when he does something, it's always about the people, but he always starts with a person. And Exodus is one, chapter 3, Moses is called, but the truth is he was called from the beginning of Exodus 1 when his life was spared, when Pharaoh was trying to kill all the male, firstborn males of Egypt. And it's always, this, this is very important for those of you who labor in the abortion industry. One of Satan's main goals, in, in, uh, he, and make no doubt about it, abortion is a very satanic, wicked thing. It's, it's more demonic, more satanic than Adolf Hitler, than Joseph Stalin, Idi Amin, or any other uh, tyrannical, evil despot you can think of. It's murder. And one of Satan's goals is he knows what the Bible is, even though there are dispensational premillennialists that are about 95% of, of so-called Bible-believing Christians are shooting for the wrong targets and don't understand what God's doing in the earth about restoring the church and how the church is going to turn the whole world upside down for Christ and, and how uh, there's going to be whole nations that become predominantly Christians. And we're on the, we're on the uh, sprinkling side of a, of a huge downpour that's, that's, that is even now beginning to happen. And it will unfold for the next several hundred years. And although the church doesn't know this, Satan knows it. And his goal in abortion is to, is to take the elect and the chosen. But like when like when Herod tried to kill Jesus, like when Pharaoh tried to kill Moses, it will always be the one that God delivers, that escapes, that will rise up to crush the enemy's head with his foot and fulfill Genesis 3.15. Just like Moses and Jesus both did. And that same process is being worked out in the battle over human life in every country in the world today because we're living on the, the beginnings of the greatest outpouring of the Spirit in the history of mankind. It will make the day of Pentecost look like uh, it was a little bit humid that day, not raining. And it's going to rain upon millions of people. Nations like India that are 3 or 4% Christian, Taiwan that's 3% Christian, I believe those two nations in 100 years will be predominantly Christian. Predominantly Christian. They will be Christianized cultures and influenced by biblical law and by the Spirit of God in every area of government, economics, politics, uh, arts, and so forth. You know, we ran into a little bit of trouble in India because I was trying to maybe a little too quickly get some of the people to, to embrace our full vision and jump on board with us. And I, I remember we were in, when we were in the Assemblies of God Church, even though it was super sub-biblical in hundreds of ways, they were nice people, they loved the Lord, they walked in the light they had. I had a great relationship with the pastor. It was hard to leave and go forward. But it came down to, it's a stewardship what God's entrusted to you. And to labor in something that's less, going to have less fruit than what God intends is a sin. It's a waste of life. New wine has to be put in new wineskins. 
And India is going to go from a, a predominantly Hindu uh, and Muslim and secular humanist nation. All three of those religions are much bigger than Christianity. But Christianity will be the predominant religion of India in 100 years. It will. It will. The same will be in Taiwan. The Chinese government will, will fall to the rise of the Christian church. Communism will actually implode in, in communist China because of, of how much the Spirit of God is being poured out and how many tens of millions of people are coming to the Lord every day. They, many people estimate that 30,000 people a day are coming to Christ in communist China today. If you've ever watched, uh, if, you, if you don't send a little of your, uh, you know, there's tithes and there's offerings. You, if you don't send a little of your offering money to, to some of the two or three good ministries that smuggle Bibles into communist China, you should. And you should watch some of their videos When someone who's loved the Lord for 30 years gets their first Bible, it's more beloved than uh, when your grandchildren are born. It's, it's wonderful to be given a copy of the scriptures in a land that forbids them. Oh, boy. Exodus 4, I'm going to have to wind it up here, and we're probably going to be two weeks on Exodus, it looks like. Um, God gives Moses the power of signs and wonders. Oh, back on Exodus 3, not only does God always prepare one person, but listen to this, because this, there's probably 30 people in this room that this applies to. So listen carefully. And by the way, more than half of the people that this applies to that you don't know it yet. It, I, I, I wish I could name names, but I don't want to embarrass anybody, but there's lots of you who don't yet, have not yet heard God on the deep level that he wants to what he's called you to do and how seriously you're going to have to study and, and uh, go against the grain of what your parents want you to do or uh, you know, chain, make vocational decisions. It, it will cost you everything, but God has called many people in this room to do great exploits for the kingdom of God. And the vision that we have as a church will be our spiritual children's children that will see some of it come, come to fruition if we do this right. And I would encourage you, like, if you're less than 40 or 50, Get your finances in a place where you're investing 10, 20% of your income so that when you're in your 50s, you can decide whether you even want to work or not. So that Because when you're coming into your greatest anointing and your deepest level of knowledge and wisdom, to be able to have the option to, to go wherever the Lord wants you to go because you've set up yourself to be able to live off your investments for the rest of your life is, a, is what every person under 50 in this room should be shooting for. Every one of you should be investing toward the end that by, by the age of 55 or 60, you're, you're going to work, it, maybe or not, or work part-time or go on staff for a, a church or one of our outreaches that we'll have in various places and, you know, be able to afford to only work for $100 a week or something like that. Uh, really, I couldn't do what I do today if I hadn't set myself up like that. And if I didn't have Catherine working, because <laughs> she gets the good medical insurance. Um, so, but really, um, when God prepares a person, listen, listen to this, this is very important. I think I have it in the notes somewhere. The most important preparation is deep relational revelation of God. So remember when Moses meets God in the burning bush? 
The bush is on fire, yet it's not consumed. And God speaks audibly to Moses, and he tells him to take off his sandals because he's on holy ground. And when Moses says, who are you, we underestimate what that's all about. That is God's most important, most holy name. And he had never told it to anyone till he told Moses. And your name is who you are. That's why Clara versus Christina is so important. It's very important. Because, you know, you know, I have two sons, John Paul and Victor David, and they're both just like their names. You know, Victor David is, is a warrior. Uh, you know, when they graduated at Dominion Academy, they give you a little scripture, and, and it, Victor's was, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against sons, and so forth. And I can't remember if it was Michelle Caldwell or Sandy, but they said, I'm looking so forward to um, not having to spend two hours in preparation before class just to argue with Victor about theology. <laughs> and uh, once I was talking to one of the Hildebrandt brothers who was the one that was working on his PhD at, at Wright State. What, which one was that? Uh, Caleb? And they, we were sitting having a coffee at Wright State, and he said, yeah, Victor's the only guy that I... I actually have to study three or four hours before I can respond to him on Facebook, <laughs> you know. And, uh, and uh, um, you know, because he's a warrior. And John, John Paul is a peacemaker. Names, names are important. When God told Moses, I am who I am, he was revealing himself in a way that he had not yet revealed himself to any man on earth. And that was, was what made Moses ready. You know, there used to be a preacher I used to love named Evie Hill. He died a long time ago, but he was an African-American guy, and he, you know, he kind of preached it, you know. And, and he, he was one of the first, and I think it's common now, but he used to say, you're all not hearing me. <laughs> you know, like, you're not hearing what I'm saying. Like, apply that. Like, you, you're not understanding what I'm saying. The greatest... The greatest preparation for what God has called you to do is a deep, spiritual, relational, real, spirit-filled, powerful, fully biblically educated experience of God. You know, I I remember one time in several, a lot of... um, Pilgrim's Progress. John Bunyan had this experience that he talks about in his book called Abundance of, uh, Abundance of Grace to the Chief of Sinners. But I remember one time on a 40-day fast when I was in the presence of the Lord, I had to ask God to, to tone it down because I couldn't take it. It was too much presence for, for my human body. And, uh, and then I totally regretted that I did that. <laughs> you know, like, I could I have that back? But lots of people have had that experience. The, the deepest preparation, what God wants to give you is a knowledge of himself that what you're known by is this person knows the Lord. You know, they, they may not be good looking. They, you know, they may have a crooked nose, broken by a steering wheel. Uh, they may have flying, thrown... Flown, flown head first through the sheet of glass. But, <laughs> uh, but, you know, knowing the Lord is what happened in Exodus 3. Moses was prepared for 80 years, but nothing prepared him like the burning bush. Well, we're past our time, so I'm going to have to start, uh, take us to Exodus 4 uh, next week. Uh, Unfortunately, I wanted to do Exodus 12 as our communion meditation, so I I will anyway. Um, Of course, Exodus 12 is the Passover, right? And so if you read Leviticus 23, or there's several other chapters, I think it's Numbers 15 and 16, there's, uh, for each of the, 
Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, each of those three books has a chapter that, uh, no, Numbers, it's two chapters, uh, about the festivals that Israel was required to honor. And the, the purpose of the festivals was to remember the acts that God had done and to teach them to our children. And they were part of the idea that all covenants have ceremonies of enactment and ceremonies of renewal. And so the Passover was not only a ceremony of enactment, which uh, which, uh, fulfilled all the promises to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who became Israel, Joseph, but uh, it's, it's God making uh, the beginning uh, from Exodus 12 to Exodus 18. God makes covenant with the nation of Israel. It's sometimes called the Sinai covenant. It's sometimes called the Mosaic covenant. Uh, the key chapters are Exodus 19 and 20. But that covenant was entered into by the celebration of a meal. That's why... The first thing that I uh, did when we were gonna, when you know, Catherine pulled me aside and and uh, said we got to talk, and she encouraged me to, to start this church uh, back in uh, the spring of 2003. The first thing that we did when we started this church is we decided we were going to have dinner after church every Sunday, and I consider that one of the most important aspects of our church. Um, it's actually where people begin to get to know us. Uh, people get take some steps toward being willing. Uh, you know, the Grays and the Haggers had their home group Friday night. I hope some of the newer people were invited to that because that's the purpose of the home groups, more importantly than anything else, which I should be calling discipleship groups. I always call them erroneously home groups because they're not their discipleship groups. But the purpose of the small groups is to invite people like Dave, who's sitting back there. Uh, I hope he was invited, because if not, you screwed up. <laughs> so, and if he wasn't invited to the Paramala's group and whoever else's group, uh, Daniel Williams's group, and so forth. And honestly, I hope that new people will get a chance to go to all of the discipleship groups two or three times as they're getting to know people. And because it, it, it should take a year or so to, for us and, and them to figure out what's the best discipleship arrangement for them. I usually help most new people for their first six months to two or three years, depending on how much um, help they need in terms of getting founded and so forth. But um, I forgot where I was going with But taking a meal together is, uh, is huge. It's all about covenant. It's why I'm so fat. I take eating together very seriously. <laughs> Those of you, you know, the, in Proverbs it says, good news, put fat on the bones. Those of you who don't have as much girth as in your eye, you're all just, we'll pray, come up and we'll pray for you after church. <laughs> Said so we can start our own prayer ministry for those who need a little bit more uh, uh, breath. <laughs> so, uh, so anyway, let's get uh, John Gray and, and Anvesh and uh, Daniel Williams up here. And, uh, you know, let us eat. Uh, don't forget, John, that the bread goes before the wine. Very important. Uh, I, so... Um, you know, it's interesting that Jesus did this with his disciples right before he went to Gethsemane. Right? Very, very intentional. Jesus didn't do stuff by accident. It, it was very intentional. He, he, he took the bread, which he had already taught them in John 6, that the bread was him. He was the manna that came down in the wilderness. He was the unleavened bread of the Passover. And uh, all that that signifies. And 
the angel of death that passed over the firstborn was because we are in Christ because the firstborn died for us. And he was the, you know, the lamb that, the lamb that was slain had to be a one-year-old lamb without defect. But remember, some people forget this. It had to be the firstborn, right? And so we are all sons and daughters of God because the one son of God, the firstborn, was sacrificed as our Passover. And when he took the cup, it wasn't just any cup. That's why it's important that it's second. Um, because it's the cup for Elijah. It's the cup. He was saying that the Messiah you're, that you've been waiting for is me when he took that cup. So this is a most holy ceremony. And, uh, and it has to do with why we, we worship this morning in spirit and truth. And nobody got killed. Because of what Christ has done for us. Even though I, uh, as your pastor, I know, starting with me, everyone who worshiped this morning deserved to die for the audacity of thinking we could come before God and sing praises to him. Who are we apart from what Christ has done to invite us to do that? So let's uh, celebrate the feast with uh, reverence. Let's uh, take a minute to search our spirits, our hearts. Let's uh, not only confess sins. Let you know. Let's you know make make uh, covenants in our heart to do relationally right. You know the 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 biggest problem that that I deal with from time to time is people that need some help with relationships, and doing relationships is the ultimate mark of of knowing the Lord. How can you say you love God whom you have not seen if you don't love uh, your, your brother? And, you know, I, there, I never divorce how, how much I consider someone mature, ready for leadership, ready for ministry. Uh, that's always directly connected to the relational skills. They can't be separated because God is ultimately a person and he ultimately is about relationships. So let us come and renew not only our covenant to the Lord himself, but in this communion meal, we're renewing our covenant to one another. Amen.